Welcome to the College Version 2 Podcast. And now your hosts, Ross Markle and Andrea Pope. The podcast begins with the kind of slow fade-in of me explaining smart lists to our guests. And then I'm like, oh, and hey, by the way, we're going to start our conversation. So... Um, I almost wonder if they're going to like in the data, if you see more peaks in their subscribers or followers after your podcast, you know, is published. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if you're recruiting for them and like doing marketing. I know how many people listen to our podcast and I know how many people listen to theirs. (laughs) I just told this story the other day. It actually has a very funny parallel and is a great segue into data use. So one of the first projects, I always tell the story when I started as a director's student affairs assessment is my job was to like get a data-based understanding of student success, like predictive models, all that stuff. And the president during a meeting at one point was like, look, all the research is telling us men of color, men of color, this is where we should be focusing our efforts to improve retention. So that was his like hypothesis for this project. And you know me, like, it's like, let's go get all the data we can. So I came back, I was like, all right, look, Mr. President, Dr. Vitruba. um, First off, right now we have a a university of about 9,000 people. 100 of our incoming students next fall will be men of color. So even if we were retaining zero of them tomorrow and we retain all of them the next day, it's not going to, you're not going to see it on our retention rate. So this is not the problem. I said, secondly, our institutional retention rate is 76%. Our men of color are retained at 79%. Like we're actually doing a good job on that front because we have good programs and services to support them. And so I was like, this is not it at all, right? Like this is not the place to look at data. And that's the way I think about SmartList podcasts is like, even if none of their, our listeners are listening <laughs> to SmartList now and all of them are tomorrow, it's not gonna change their numbers. So anyway. That is true. The drop in the bucket. Very great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a long, long way around. But basically, to- the utility of the data is like meaningless at this point. It's more the I almost said it's the utility of our podcast is meaningless, but <laughs> uh, I wouldn't go welcome. that far. But on that note, welcome to the college version. That's the thing about the the segue intro, Renee, is you forget to say what podcast it is. So this is the college version two podcast. I am Ross Markle, along with my co-host, Andrea Pope, and our special guest co-host today, Dr. Renee Delgado-Riley. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Thank you for being... So, Renee, a probably great place to start is just um, tell us a little bit about your... You have, as always, many irons in the fire. In case you won't mention this in your segue, Renee is... Um, an excellent wife and mother. She has a farm outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico that is gorgeous. She takes, oh man, her farm is great. And (laughs) generally speaking, there's usually a room to stay there if you're ever rolling through Albuquerque. Not for podcast listeners, that was just for Andrea, not anyone. (laughs) Um, More the merrier. Yeah. I'll have some things about you I will add in and ask you about because I'm sure you won't cover all the things I would want to talk about about your story, but I'll give you a window now to give a little bit of an introduction and and talk about where you are, how you got there, whatever you want to say to introduce yourself to the 50 to 100 people who might listen to this podcast. 
Hey, 50 to 100 people. Remember, it's like one person. You make a difference. That's all that matters. So thank you for having me. I'm just excited to see like my favorite people and be in conversation with you all. So anytime, I'm always happy to chat. So my name is Renee Delgado Riley. I am the Director of Student Life Assessment and Research at the University of Oregon. I've been there for seven and a half years, but I've been in higher ed doing assessment, research, evaluation, grant writing, a lot of things that come with being in a division of student affairs for um, 16 years. Um, really how I classify myself in my everyday role because student affairs assessment and research director, that doesn't really make sense for like the lay person. And so I really just say that I am a person to help translate and connect people through data to make sure that we're understanding students' needs in real time. And if we're understanding if we're doing the right things and if we're doing things right so that I can share that with my colleagues so they can make the best decisions about programming, support, services, et cetera, because we know that student needs change. So I really think of myself also as an equity-centered facilitator of this work. Um, as somebody who is a first-generation student, someone from an early age whose family really encouraged higher education, but no one in my family had gone. I was completely clueless. Um, I also didn't score very high on my ACT scores, and I was told that, you know, maybe college wasn't the right choice. And so I really didn't get a lot of scholarships going into the university uh, beyond the, the one. New Mexico, where I went, was a great state. Um, they have the lottery scholarship, and it's changed over the years. But basically, if you met a certain GPA requirement, you were allowed to get the scholarship. And if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would have been able to afford um, higher education. And so my family cheered me on from the sidelines. They were always great, but they really didn't know how to help me. And so kind of I was, it was like trial by fire more like than like trial by error going through the higher ed process. I didn't even know student affairs was a career. I was so clueless. And it wasn't until I got involved on campus as an undergrad in our Latino student services, as well as um, just some other things doing community engagement that I realized that you could actually do like research as a career and be a scholar. And so that's how I got tapped into the Ronald E. McNair program. Um, it's an undergraduate research program for first gen low income and traditionally marginalized students. And I remember I was so naive about like, I knew that there were four year degrees. And I knew that you could go to, like to law school, pharmacy school, and you could become a medical doctor. But I didn't know anything about grad school. I didn't even know what it was called. And so my first meeting I had with the advisor, she asked me, okay, you're doing your research on this. Um, where are you going to apply to grad school? And I remember I just like burst out crying in tears because I was like, I don't know what grad school is. I felt so embarrassed and humiliated. I was clueless. But regardless, fast forward, you know, years later where I'm at, um, you know, I was able to pursue my master's and my PhD. And I'm so thankful that I was able to build my career in student affairs, because I'm super passionate about giving back to the students who may be lost in the university, may not understand, specifically honing in on our first generation students. And so really, I just hope to be a role model to other people and really share my voice um, and working through that imposter syndrome that I still am challenged with today. So that's how I would introduce myself um, as where I've been, where, where what I've gone through to be where I'm at today. I'm so glad and Andrea, let me apologize because I'm about to take a 15-minute diversion off of our itinerary. Um, but I'm so glad you positioned that story that way because I was going to mention, um, for those who don't know, like Renee and I have known each other. You were you interned with me at ETS in summer of 2010, 2011. 
2011. Yeah, Renee was my first ever intern, um, and she still talks to me, so I take that as as a pride. But so I can't say that you inspired all the work that I've done, but you, I mean, you in a way you are an inspiration of it, but not necessarily the initial one. But I wanted to tell a little side story and then segue back into you. But I was given a talk on non-cognitive factors at a community college in Chicago one time, and I remember there was a faculty member sitting in the back. And he just had that faculty look the whole time of like, I have a question that's going to tear you apart and I can't wait to ask it. And we've all had that before. But I remember getting the talk to the end and I was like, does anyone have any questions? And he raised his hand and he was like, so when we all went to college, um, all of these things with like sense of belonging and self-efficacy you know, what you're saying is basically like college, you know, filters a lot of students out, especially underserved students. And, and basically we were just lucky enough to get that stuff right. And we need to help them because they're not getting that stuff right. And I was like, yeah, more or less. And he just said, oh, okay. Like he got it. Like he totally did, but he couldn't wipe the smarm off of his face. And one of the things that I love about you, Renee, is you are very keenly aware of those barriers because you lived them. And so many people, I always tell this story, like this is one of my go-to jokes of you, you once put it to me as I say, you know, I work with this woman who she says when she went to college, she was a single parent, low ACT score, first gen, she was Latina. And then I always say she still is Latina. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so all those things where I'm like, you you articulate that you had all those things that we, or at least traditionally higher education researchers have said are barriers, none of which in and of itself is a barrier, right? They are just yeah. groups of people who haven't succeeded as well. You have always been keenly aware of not only that, that you had those characteristics, but how they impacted your journey. And then, but also the psychology of what came after that of, you know, you talked about imposter syndrome and goal commitment and kind of the college knowledge, a lot of things that we talk about in that space. And I just wondered if you could kind of share like, where's the chicken and the egg there, right? Like, is it that you knew those things and so you got into the student success world or as you became more into student success research, you kind of were able to put those labels on things that had happened to you? Now, that's a really good uh, question. And I think it's a combination of things, right? Having this lived experience, but not really understanding like that metacognitive like factors involved in that. Like I knew that I knew it was a barrier for me to go to college financially because as a low income first gen, like that was the biggest barrier for me. Fortunately for me, I always did really well in school. I was always very scholarly and studious. And so I felt like I worked hard. I studied hard. I can figure out the answers to things. I, I had really high help seeking behavior. So I knew how to like figure out a problem if I encountered something academically. But for me, the financial piece and being first gen were some of those factors, but I didn't understand how they played into things. And then when I started getting involved on campus as an undergrad, and I started particularly getting involved in research and start doing like thorough literature reviews and like understanding regression and understanding statistical modeling. Like, I think those things just culminating together, I like was starting to learn, oh, this might help explain why I was, you know, feeling this way. But because I had the help seeking behavior, and I made the conscious decision to seek out some of these campus resources that then connected me to a social support network, 
which then when I encountered another challenge, I could then go to this social support network. And so I was like, it's kind of like building the plane as you're flying it kind of concept. I felt like I was like figuring it out as I was going. And I don't think if you would have asked me this question, like how to introduce myself, even just 15 years ago, I don't think I would have introduced myself in the same way. Because I think in some ways I recognize these characteristics weren't very important to my journey because I had learned from an early age that I needed to acclimate to the higher ed culture. I needed to like kind of not think about this background characteristics. But I think now as I've gone through that journey and recognizing like through the research, through my scholarly work, as well as through my own background, I can now like understand that these things are playing in. And so um, that is why I was so interested in working with you, Ross, early on is because when I first heard non-cognitive, I had studied educational psychology and I knew about cognitive, but it's the social cultural pieces that weren't being represented in the literature. And that's why I tapped so into that so quickly is because I finally had something to articulate my experience and why I was able to overcome those barriers and challenges was because I had high help seeking behavior. I found my social support. I was resilient and persistent and I had that goal commitment. If I didn't have that goal commitment, I don't think I would have been as persistent, right? So I think you gave your work, your scholarship actually gave me the words to actually structure my experience in a different way and understand it, I think, fully. And I don't know if that answered your question, but those are just my raw thoughts on that. No, it totally. And it's funny because I see a lot of that um, in my path, right? Like, because just the other day, someone was like, how did you get to doing this? Like, you know, I explained what I do, especially you know, running a company, it's like, well, how did you, where, you know, where did that come from? And it's such a convoluted road that I, it, like you said, if you would have asked me what I wanted to do when I finished my PhD or when I started my PhD or even when I graduated college, never could have mapped this out. But I think it's just kind of continuing to follow your passion um, and, and enjoying what we do. I think you and I share that very much. And um, I think it's, it's helped, you know, I didn't, come from a place where I have, I'm a straight white man, right? Like I got, I, I didn't have any of those challenges, but this language has still resonated with me in the same way. And I feel like that's, that's one of the things I, I think about this as you talk that if nothing else, if schools can talk about non-cognitive skills, just as a language for articulating what students are going through, that's the biggest value. And even if just so, so I can say my program does sense of belonging and Renee says, well, my program does goal commitment. And Andrea can say, I'm helping with, you know, you know, self-management and stress and things like that. We can start to feel out where we're all working as a campus to support students across that spectrum. And even if you never do a survey or gather data or whatever, or even if you don't use our framework, having something like that, as you said, as a language to articulate that, that we can all speak. I think is the greatest value that institutions can have from that work. But And I just jump in and say what I really love about it is that it's not deficit minded. It's very much like what are students bringing with them and how can we capitalize and reframe what they're bringing rather than these three things they have, they're more at risk versus like, yes, they're bringing with them some of these barriers, but they're also bringing this package of like these cultural gifts and experiences that can be reframed into strengths and can be changed, right? Because we can't change the way we look or where we've been, but we can change the way that our mindset is to have more growth mindset. So I appreciate that it's not deficit oriented as well. And I'm so excited to, to, to see that shift happening in higher education. Renee, when you said that uh, you 
initially the focus was on acclimating to your environment. And so you may meet, you weren't thinking about your identities and how those interacted or impacted your experience. You weren't trying to figure out uh, what are the things, what are the strengths I'm bringing with me and how am I using those to mitigate the challenges? And I think as we look at higher education, I think that that was probably because that was the message that you were getting from higher education in general, is that it is your job as a student to come and to acclimate and to figure out how to be successful. And if you can't be successful, then maybe you're not ready to be here. And I love that we're making this shift in higher education where we recognize that it's our job to serve our students. And so we're trying to learn this language and we're trying to understand more how these identities affect and impact our students' journeys uh, so that we can help them understand that as well. And I just, I'm, the, that's why I'm so excited to be working with Ross and to be working more with Isaac and learning more about non-cognitive skills, because you're right, that language is so powerful for students and for institutions. And I plug uh, our own blog posts for this month, because um, I should mention, you know, this month we're talking about transitioning data to information to action. You know, what is the core mission of our organization, but uh, and, and why, Renee, you're like the perfect guest to kick us off for this, because I know that's also explicitly or implicitly a lot of what you try to do. Um, but I think, you know, I just wrote about that shift in higher education. And I, I hate to talk it like, a, but it essentially is a shift to like a consumer focus, right? That's really saying we're not just anymore these institutions of higher learning come bask in our brilliance. And if you make it great, if you don't, that's your own fault. We're, we're learning that. And I, the parallel I drew in the blog post was saying, it's actually the same thing we've had to go through in assessment. And we're still going through it of like going from a time when it was like, here's your report, here's your data, up to you, what happens after this, to realizing if we do that, no one's gonna change, like that's not gonna be effective. And that's what our organization's about. I know that's what your work's about. Um, but it's really, I thought it was an interesting parallel of that shift from realizing, oh, we can't just be these houses of, of knowledge, both uh, assessment professionals and colleges and universities. Um, we have to think about the, our constituents and how we work differently to better support them. Um, yeah, okay, I'm gonna move on now. I was gonna have some <laughs> other questions, but I'll, I'll put those in towards the end. Um, that gives us a nice segue into kind of data use and how do we better connect what we gather as data to what folks are doing. And so um, Renee, Andrea and I were talking yesterday and one of the reasons that I, I admire your work so much is that you have all of the stuff I've been through with like the assessment side of it, right? Like how do we write good reports and how do we, you know, data visualization and all that stuff. But you are also have been, having worked at two flagship universities are so in the weeds of add on all the higher ed administration aspects of that, of working in silos and managing change and accreditation and all of those kind of practical things. And you do such a wonderful job of, of marrying those two things. Um, and so I just kind of first wanted to open for you to say kind of, as I talk about this transition, you know, our, our organizational mission of data information action, when I say that, what does that mean to you? What's your philosophy or kind of strategy um, in, in terms of how you handle that in your work? 
No, that's a really good question. And I think the best way to like, if I, if you ask me one word to like describe that data information into action, I say it comes from centering humans and community, right? And so part of of what I've been able to do is I think historically our field has always been very technical, jargony, very like just these really difficult things to understand. And so I see myself as a translator, right? That's how I kind of introduce myself. And so I'm trying not only to translate the information and help people make meaning, but I'm also connecting them. And so I'm making it very, very approachable. And so a lot of the work I do, um, I would say 85% of my job is on relationship building and meeting with people, being warm and welcoming and just at every meeting I have, even if it's just like, hey, let's have a coffee chat or let's just have a quick conversation about something. I'm always leaning in and hearing from them, seeing like, okay, what are you challenged with right now? What are you experiencing? What are some things you need? And so I'm constantly, I feel like I'm doing always like mini focus groups, right? I'm always leaning in and trying to learn from people what, you know, hearing their expertise, hearing their interests, hearing their challenges, understanding these very complex problems. And then I also say the secondary piece is in this like network of this community I'm building on campus is I'm also um, trying to connect the dots. And so if I have a conversation with someone in the libraries and they're interested in, you know, their colleagues, the faculty want to know more about like textbook costs and how they're rising. I'm like, well, I work with the basic needs and we do textbook subsidies and we're collecting data. So then when I'm meeting with them, like, how can I connect these two together? Or when I'm having meetings with our faculty and teaching engagement program, I'm like, how can I connect these dots here? And so I feel like it, to me, it's about community building um, and a lot of relationships. And I think I lead with that because I think that's so important because I know in my work sometimes, and I work with a lot of very technical people, which I can get in the weeds. I love our code. I love all that technical stuff. I do dashboards. I got data. I can tidy it. But at the end of the day, what does this data mean and how can we use it? And so I think these relationships are key. And also I create a, I like to say, I like to create a lot of assessment ambassadors across the institution because there's a lot of people who do great work with students and they want to know if they're doing the right things. And so sometimes they feel like, well, I don't have the technical expertise to do like an evaluation or assessment, or you sent me this report and I don't really understand this graph. Can you break it down? It's like, to me that I failed, right? Like they should be able to interpret and understand that. And so I spent a lot of time making sure that these people feel like they have a general grasp of data and information. So then they can like help make decisions. And one thing that we do in our office too, is we like to make it fun. I feel like this work can get very boring very easily. And so we just have like fun acronyms. We make it fun. We try to do a lot more like human connectedness and things. And I think that to me has been one of the ways that I've been able to find success and strategies and helping people make sense of data is that community piece. And then the other thing is making it accessible. I think a lot of times people spend a lot of time on a survey or a focus group or whatever methodology, and then they compile something and it's like group think they only share it with like a small sector of the institution. And me, I'm completely open and transparent. And so a couple of years ago, we started this metric Monday initiative where we just said every Monday, we're going to send like a quick infographic, very high level, whether it's qualitative, quantitative, send it to folks and do a grassroots efforts of building a listserv. And we started with like 30 people and now we're up to like 145 people that have subscribed over the years. Um, And we have everyone from board members to senior leaders, to people in all the academic schools and colleges. 
And um, even government and community relations will reach out to me pretty frequently about that. And to me, it's just a way to share the data because in student life, I mean, we have certain use for our information, but just because we're not using it in a certain way doesn't mean that you know, the Office of the Provost or um, the College of Arts and Sciences can't use it in a certain way. And so I'm always about sharing it. And so that has really helped is the accessibility, the community building, um, just being as transparent and helping people connect and just being supportive to them. Because I think people feel intimidated. I know in my, I, I think initially I was so naive again, because I was first in my family to go to college. I just assume everybody with three letters after their name automatically understand data and statistics. I don't know why I thought this. Maybe because my PhD was super quantitative and super intensive with stats. I just assumed everybody knows what this means. Well, unfortunately, it took me years to realize that's not the case. And so I think a lot of times where when I get pushback or I get data detractors a lot at these senior levels with these three letters after their names, I think it's just in, they're intimidated by it. And so I do my best to make it as accessible and approachable like yeah, there's this very complex graph here, but this is what this means. And this is how you can use it. And this is how it can better our institution. And so just really trying to have like a more warm and welcoming approach um, to that as well, I think has been, um, have been some strategies that have helped us. This episode is brought to you by the League for Innovation in the Community College. The League's 2024 Innovations Conference will be held March 17th to 20th in Anaheim, California. Find out more at www. Dot .league.org Thanks also to our sponsor, DIA Higher Education Collaborators. Want to understand your student's sense of belonging? Want to use vital student data to predict success? How about train your faculty and staff to better integrate a growth mindset into their work with students? DIA's Isaac platform can help you do all this and more. Find out more at www. Isaac.net. That's I S S A Q dot net. Now back to the show. One, I just want to jump in and say, I think one tactical tip I would give folks when it comes to sharing data is if you're going to put data on a slide, it either has to be so simple that you read it and understand it right away, or it has to be so complex that people aren't gonna try to understand it until you explain it to them. <laughs> it's when you put like that table up there that's got like 12 cells and people are trying to read it while, like I put box and whisker plots all, all the time. And there's nothing on a box and whisker plot that is technically rigorous, but you put 12 of them up there and don't, people are like, what is that? And so um, I find that like when we communicate data, you're exactly right. Is like, you gotta understand how you're, presenting daunting or complex things, because I find people are either, like you said, they're, if you think about the learning, they're either on the front end of it and they're so afraid or just whatever that they're like, I'm not a data person. I'm not going to touch it. The other side you didn't talk about are the people who've advanced past the learning ignorantly and just say, I know I took stats. I know. Yeah, no, no, I know. And then you're like, but you don't quite know that just because that number went up that you changed, that you caused it. Like you don't quite get it. So you, you kind of have to figure out how to position those data in a way to, I don't want to say manage the learning in the way that you want, but you do have to understand that's the data information, right? That's how, like, you don't want people to take away things they shouldn't be taking away or, you know, not that you're trying to control things, but you don't want inappropriate inferences. So how do you position that in a way that makes sense? But 
you, I, I thought people always say good question, great response, because you really <laughs> started off by saying community. And it was really clear in everything you said after that, that you talk about data in a social context. And, and I think that's incredibly valuable. And I have a different, like, I would say my philosophy about data use is growth. Everything, like, we've done this because we admit what we're doing now isn't working. So that means we're going to do something differently. How do we make the best decision? I think you said, how are we doing the right things and how are we doing them right? I love that. Um, so I, I, that would be my take. And I'm, I'm segueing, I'm facilitating to Andrea. If you, do you have like a thing where you're like, here's how I articulate my vision of data use or sharing information? Yeah, I was, I was, I was thinking about this and I was trying to figure out if I could formulate a question for you, Renee. My, my background and a lot of my work is in the higher education assessment, but specifically student learning outcomes assessment. And there's a, a lot of overlap in the work that I did with, uh, the teaching and learning sphere. And so when I think about data use, I'm often thinking about how can we use data to build effective interventions and then how can we use data to improve those interventions. But a lot of what comes up in that work is about asking the right questions to get the data that's going to be meaningful, valuable, actionable. And so I'm wondering in your role and the work that you do, do you typically find that you're coming in once people have already asked the questions, they, they have a question and they come to you to help try to answer it? Or are you a part of the process of helping them identify what are the questions that we should even be asking in the first place? I think it's a hodgepodge of all those things, right? Like in our division, we've set, like, because I have more control in the division of student life since my purview is to build a culture of assessment, right? Mm -hmm. So we're able to embody that culturally responsive assessment in a more controlled way in our division. And so I think we are more involved at the the forefront of helping people develop questions. And the, the number one thing, I love Simon Sinek's Golden Circle, why? What is yeah. your why? Why do you want to know this information about our students? And then the secondary is, how are you going to use it? Because I think that will drive a lot at the beginning and planning. So in Student Life, we've done a really good job over the years of controlling that a little bit more. But across the institution, because I do a lot of work beyond Student Life, mm -hmm. it's not as clear cut, right? I have people coming to me like, here's this survey that I just sent. Can you help me interpret it? And it's like, well, okay, let's go back to why did you send this out in the first place? What was the original intent? So it's a little bit harder, right? We have to work a little bit more backwards. And so it's, it's all over the place. I always feel like I'm an institutional consultant for assessment and research best practices. That, that's what I feel like sometimes when I have these. But I think some of the strategies, you know, just, you know, meeting people where they're at, um, I try not to criticize people for doing the wrong thing. You know, that's part of learning. Like we make mistakes. We screw up all the time. And so I really just try to like treat them as humans um, when they're not doing things very well. Um, and so I really just try to like ask them questions and do reverse psychology. Like, well, was this helpful for you? They're like, no. Like, for example, the University Career Center, they came to me. They're like, we're getting a minimal response rate right, on our post um coaching, uh, career coaching sessions, and we want to increase response rates. And I'm like, okay, well, what you've got so far, like, are you using it? They're like, no. I'm like, well, why are you using this process? Like, it's obviously not helpful, meaningful for anyone. So let's come together and have a conversation. And so it's really just like asking those questions, like, is this helpful for you? Um, obviously, you're coming to me for a reason. So 
usually the answer is it's probably not helpful. So let's work together to build a better process, right? So it's a little bit all over the place um, what I get from people. Um, I think it's really easy in student life because again, we've built that culture and I think people are just, it's just, it's really great. I can't, I'm like very biased, obviously. I love Maida's vision, but like our, even just for example, our assessment committees are called CAKES, which is uh, Community Assessment Knowledge Experts. And so we always say, don't let your cake go stale. We like it to be fun. Sometimes we have cake at meet. Who doesn't love cake, right? I know I'm not supposed to eat cake, but come on. Like who doesn't love cake? So in our division, it's easier, but outside it's it's a lot more challenging and it could be really challenging. Um, specifically, I want to, if it's okay, I want to go back to the point that Ross mentioned about um, inappropriate or um, not not having the right inferences from the data. That is to me the most challenging thing in my job is, when people who think they know about data, mm-hmm. and I call them data postures, like they're posturing that they know so much about data, but really they don't. Those are the people that I, that's actually the hardest part of my job is helping spend time with them, reframing and re like, this is what this actually means. It doesn't mean this or them taking something and over inflating it and putting it on something that they're sending to possible recruits for the university. I'm like, no, that's not correct. You can't do it in that way. Right. So to me, that part, I haven't figured out um, a solution for other than just trying to do some outreach to, um, because that comes with this whole, like, oh my God, we could go down the rabbit hole with that one. Cause sometimes really what it comes down to is like checking assumptions. And I mean, there's so many things, uh, but that is probably the hardest part of my job. Um, is dealing with the people who think they know about data and think they know how to use data, but they're really kind of, I don't know what we would call them besides they're trying to data posture, but they're just, they're just not doing a very good job. And I I have a really hard time with them trying to get them back. Like, no, no, let's, let's come back here. It's not an appropriate use of that information. Well, it's so funny. So I've been reading, um, Ben Waldowski just came out with a new book called The Career Arts. And it's about creating like a general education thread that helps students kind of build their career identity and plans rather than trying to train them for the skills that we think that they need. And th- I mean, it, it, this is so rife in our world of like, we, we too closely connect the X and the Y without looking at all the letters that came before it or possible letters that might be in between. And I'm reminded of when I left my job in student affairs assessment and our VP was like, Oh, so I need to hire someone with a background in like data analytics or mathematics. And I'm like, no, like nothing I do here is complex. There's nothing we do in this work that you can't really do in Excel. I mean, you can do some, you probably need fancier stuff for some things, but seriously, if I told you all you had was Excel, you could do a 90% great job. What you need is, is those people who do have that more liberal, you know, art skill set of, yes, I need to understand the data but I also need to fit that into a narrative. And I also need to fit that into a strategic plan. And then how do I communicate that? And that broader set of the that part, again, I, this isn't, I didn't intend for this to just be like, let's praise Renee for 45 minutes, but it's what it's going to be. And that's again, where I think you are such a strong assessment professional um, is that realization of like, yes, we need to have good data, but that's just one part of it in a much broader social and information exchange kind of idea. So. I think it's it's interesting, Renee, that you brought up the the, the challenge of the the data postures who are maybe 
too too excited to to take the data and run with it even when it's not saying what they might think it's saying uh i think i've also had challenges on the opposite side where we'll have faculty who they have every they look at data and they will have every argument for why we shouldn't trust this data or why it doesn't say anything that we can use or that's actionable that we need more and more and more information we need more rigorous studies we need all these different types of things and trying to find that balance between not not acting off of information if we are, if there are assumptions that aren't being met or if there are threats to the validity of our, our conclusions, but at the same time, recognizing that we'll never have all the information that we want. We're probably never going to be 100% certain about what is, what what's happening and uh, what the best course of action is, but that we need to move forward. And I, I've definitely experienced the challenge of being in that place of trying to balance those things. Oh, that's so hard. I mean, we get that too. Like I said, we get like the whole spectrum of like people who are excited, misusing it, people who get it, people who are like, uh, this, what was our, my, my favorite question from senior leaders is what was your sample size? What was your response rate? And it's like, okay, let's talk about, you know, sample, um, representation and let's talk about, you have a population because I've had board members say, well, 100% of this population didn't take this survey. So we can't really generalize these findings and we can't really use the data. I'm like, well, okay, let's back up here. And so that to me, that's the the funniest part of like, again, people with three letters after their name, Mm -hmm. they don't understand the basics. They think they do. And so I have to like help unpackage some of those things and do stats 101 and just, it's kind of silly actually, but you know. What's really fascinating about that is you and I, Renee and Andre, like we all have similar paths to where we are now, right? But Renee, if you and I go into the same meeting and same person, every time I think about this person, it is a single faculty member from Santa Monica College who crossed me in the year 2010. And I will never forget him. He's the one I think about when I think of of, of difficult people in the room. But in any case, that that guy asked me a challenging question that was in its ballpark, right? There was a combination of ignorance and skepticism and just bad vibes. I put him in his place. In fact, at the time I was like, I won't go down the rabbit hole, but I, I put him in his place. And when we walked out, the Dean grabbed me and was like, thank you so much. That guy's in all these meetings and he's a jerk, blah, blah, blah. And I'm now realizing if anyone from Santa Monica that was in that room was listening to this, everyone knows who I'm talking about. But in any case, that was right for me because I wasn't going to be there tomorrow. But you can't do that. You have to you have to come out of there like better. Like you have to make that guy look good and get him on board because if you don't then he's going to go into another meeting and undercut what you're doing. Or even worse, you're going to be stuck with him on a committee next semester and you're going to have to figure out how to coexist. And I think that that's really kind of that's a very difficult tension of the kind of local assessment expert that doesn't often get talked about. No, I think you're, you brought up a perfect challenge. And again, trial by fire, as I said earlier, is in my previous institution. I had not said any names, but someone high in the provost's office who literally took data that I analyzed, reanalyzed it to make sure that he was getting the same mm-hmm. outcome that I was presenting. And I, at the time, 
put them in its place. And that came back to burn me. Right. And so I learned that the hard way. And so now I really try to like, again, kind of the whole like stroking the ego, but at the same time saying, well, actually this is how we can reframe it. And this is another perspective. And and so just trying to like educate, use it as a learning opportunity for these people. But I think you bring up a good point that I think if you're going to tell any new assessment professional, you got to be, it's like that politically astute, you know, trait that you have to have. And you have to recognize, like, I got to pick my battles. How is that going to affect me tomorrow? And I think early on in my career, I didn't realize the long-term consequences of that, of having someone in such a high position of power who came back to basically almost try to sabotage my career, right? And it's it's a terrible experience. And so I learned very quickly that I had to change my MO and how I work with some of these, I call them data postures, data detractors, however we want to classify them. Yeah, this sounds like where's um where's one of our AALHE colleagues? I think we have a, a panel session in the future for new assessment professionals in higher education. Um well, yeah. Yeah. Where's Monica Stittberg? Is she the last president of AALHE? I can't remember. Um she was the last time I checked, but anyhow. Yeah. Okay, I have like three more things I want to talk with you about, Renee, and I'm I'm aware of our our time. Um, so I, I want to ask first. Um, I want to kind of go top down from general to specific. I'll kind of start by talking about design, and I ask this question because you've started a campus data collection initiative around well-being at the University of Oregon, and I think it's one of those things where I'm not sure if how that came about but it's really clear you've kind of stumbled across something that that's a data point people will care about. And that that just by the nature of the way you're doing that work, it invites participation, collaboration, interest. I kind of wanted to ask, are there things that you think about when you're doing projects where you're like, either in the design or the content or the, the dis dissemination that you think about that in that world of community about like, well, how do I do this in a way that's going to embed that. No, it's it's a good point. And I think I'm very fortunate. Um, I think the scariest thing for me, leaving an institution where I did all my degrees, you know, I had built a network, I got involved, and then I had a really great network. I like knew anyone to call. And so coming to the UA, I knew no one, right? I had to start from zero and build my network. But over the last seven and a half years, I've built that network. And so I'm more aware, keenly aware of what's going to affect different people in different ways because I'm constantly listening. Every time I have a meeting, my first questions are, what are your challenges and wins right now? Like, what are you experiencing? And like, how can my office support you? I mean, those are some key questions. Um, and then the other side of that is if I have a report or something from our well-being or another thing that our office does, it's did I accurately represent these voices? And then also what I haven't mentioned is we do a lot back to the student. Like, hey, this is what we develop based on your survey responses or focus group responses. Did we do a good job basically dignifying your experience and voice? Is anything missing? Do you see yourself represented? And so keeping those things aware in all these conversations I have across campus really helped me like get ahead of like, what are some things that we're gonna have to anticipate? So right now, I just mentioned the textbook stuff. This is something that's coming very rapidly with the high cost of living in the Pacific Northwest. It is something that our students have been struggling with. Basic needs are huge. And so keeping ahead of our dashboard, meeting with people, showing them the data points that we're collecting and curating, and does this still make sense? Is anything missing? And now adding student voices to that and, and really just trying to like 
lean into all these different spaces. So to me, building that relationship again, I can't, I feel like I sound like a broken record, but I think it's so important as you meet with people um, and hearing things. And so like about a year ago, we were hearing some stuff about obviously basic needs and finance stuff. And so financial wellness was something that we weren't, when we think about well-being, we're, we don't have really any constructs that represent or measure financial wellness. And so the financial aid office wanted to fill their own survey. And we said, why are you going to fill your own survey? Just come in with our student well-being survey that we already have before students are students. And then every spring, there's a spring follow-up um, that we have. So how about we just add some questions? So let's work together. To, and we ended up adding seven questions. And they said, you know what? We have a pot of money. Let's incentivize this. Let's give students some money because they're struggling. And we were able to incentivize it, get a higher response rate, get the financial aid data that they need it, but then also our office at the same time. And so it's just like leaning into these different conversations. And so again, being a good researcher, right? And so every time I'm meeting with someone is I'm thinking ahead. Same thing, what's happened at our state level with um, the institution hasn't done a great job with collecting gender identity on our campus, but our own well-being survey has also been collecting that for a really long time. And so just making sure that I make um, plenty of meetings with our LGBTQIA plus student services so I can meet with them. So I meet with their coordinator quarterly to say, hey, this is how we're asking these questions. Like, does this make sense? You know, um, does this make sense for your students that you're working with? Um, can I get some feedback from them? And so just constantly making it very um, a by like mutual process of us like interacting. And so I think that's the biggest thing is um, anytime I'm thinking about change, thinking about adding questions, I have meetings with people to talk about things. Um, the other day I got asked about how many students are participating in undergraduate research. And so we have that question on a couple of benchmarking surveys. And then we also have administrative data we collect. And I said, well, let's just have a meeting with all these folks and like hear from them, see what they need to know and why they want to know this and how they want to present this information. And so it's already like pushing forward another thing. And so we're now thinking how, well, how can we consolidate these two benchmarking surveys now? Because they both ask the same question. We don't need them both. So maybe let's con consolidate. And so I think it's just leaning in and, and talking to people, listening, taking notes, and um, just making sure that we're working more collaboratively with one another. And again, I don't know if that answers the question, but those are some of the things I think about design and reporting and just kind of in incorporating you know, I, into I our just... well-being stuff. I was just thinking how much you cemented the fact that if I ever become a university president, you're going to immediately be my VP of IR. Because one of the things I was thinking about is like how many times we step onto a campus and we're like, hey, we have this awesome survey. It's going to give you a ton of data. And they're like, well, we already do this other survey. And how do we make those coexist? And oftentimes the first thought in my head is that survey stinks. Just stop doing that one. This will be way better. And again, that's something I can do. That's something you can't do, Renee. But I feel like saying, you know, and we try to do this with Isaac across all our, our all of our users, but say like, well, if you have that survey that's really important to you and it gives you data we're not getting, maybe we can lump that in. And that's what we did with basic needs questions, with career efficacy questions, with financial worry questions. We started one school and we just said, I don't, everybody would probably, you know, at, at worst, not hold value. No one would have a problem with this. It might add huge value, might be nothing, but we can add this and, and, and sync and synchronize those efforts. And I think the other benefit of that to kind of your broader community awareness is you stop a lot of that bad data from getting out there by taking that out of people's hands. Um, and I think that's a huge challenge on a lot of fronts, but and what there's I one other, oh, 
I was just going to say something that really stood out to me, Renee, when you were talking, and I think this is something that I, uh, I find to be critically important as well with that collaboration piece and listening is making sure that the people who were want the people who are going to be using the data that they're a part of the process from the beginning from the stage of asking the questions when we're developing the measures that we're hearing their voices when it comes to us presenting the results we're talking about what are the ways in which we can share this that are going to be meaningful to you what formats and also i love those follow-up questions of are we truly capturing your needs, your experiences? Are these data truly representing um, your challenges? All those things, I think it's it's so important. I think so often what happens is that the people who are expected to use the data, they're not a part of the conversation until it's time for the data to be used or for something to happen. And they're like, this doesn't, I, of course, if they're coming in at that point, it's going to be a challenge. And so I, I love how much focus you have on making it a collaborative effort and building that culture where people are involved throughout the entire process. Uh, but sorry, Ross, go ahead. No, no, totally fine. I, I have so much more. I have two things. One is a story I want to tell and, and get your response, Renee. And then the other is, is I want to open the floor to you to talk a little bit about Saul. Um, but one of the things Andrea was at, we were talking yesterday and Andrea's like, you know, we're trying to get in the right headspace for this. And I said, here's the thing about Renee that always makes me think about her in this space. As I mentioned, you have a farm. You are an excellent cook. I always see you posting on Instagram about stuff you've made, which um, I don't need to go any further. But you told me one time, you, and I don't know if, if it was exactly the way I remember it was, you started baking or baked more because taking things to people across campus was a way to, to foster positive relationships. And you were always keenly aware that if I showed up with like a jam I just made, it's great to have those visits that are not, hey, I need your data or hey, this report just came out. And, and can you talk, I just wanted to get your reaction to kind of <laughs> that, that way of managing that social network in a very effective, but also intentional kind of approach that I thought was really humanizing and beautiful and wasn't like, scheming. It was just like, I know this is important. So I just wondered if you would just kind of talk about that a little bit. No, that's a great thing. I always say my, you know, the love languages, but I consider my love language cooking and baking. Um, and oh my sharing. God, my wife, our first date, she's like, food's a love language. And I was like, I don't think so. And then six <laughs> I months know. in, I was like, you're right. It is. It totally yeah, is. Exactly. I feel like the weight of somebody's heart is through their stomach. I mean, I'm it's like that thing we say here in New Mexico, panza llena, corazón contento, which means full stomach, happy heart. Like that's kind of my my secret, right? And so I think part of me, you know, figuring out how to be my most um, unassimilated, authentic self in the academy, um, I really like to share a piece of myself because I think it is humanizing. And I think the pandemic really illuminated the importance of humanizing the experience, right? And I think that that gave more testament and commitment to me to continue my my secret here. But I really, I really tried to share myself with other people um, to make it less intimidating, less threatening, and just to, you know, be thankful for them and and their part in this major ecosystem. And because I get it, working is tough. And I know higher ed historically, we're overworked, traditionally underpaid for what we do. And so 
to me if I can give jam to people or I can give cookies or something. And even folks who might be like gluten intolerant, they're just like, I can't eat these, but I can share these. And it's the thought that counts. So I appreciate that. But I've been doing that for a long, long time. Um, so usually if people are close to me, they've they've uh, got some some good things. And I have made cake before for our cake committees. And that's always fun. So um, I think that's why I like it so much because we could take cake. I need to create like a pie committee, though. I haven't figured out what it me- would mean, but, <laughs> but I love to bake pies as well. Um, that one's but yeah, that your conversations about personally identifying information, you just, you know, anytime we're having a data security meeting, it's a pie meeting. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. I might take, I might take that and run with it, but yeah. So I really just try to, I love through food and and sharing my gifts that I am able to create and, you know, being on the farm. Oh my gosh, there's so much jams and jellies. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I don't really eat a lot of jam and jelly. I don't eat a lot of sugar. And so for me, I love to share it with people. I also have peach wine if people drink. So I tend to give those away as well, which uh, especially in the Pacific Northwest, people like wine. So that's gone over pretty well as well. Awesome. Um, Real quickly, I know you're currently serving as Saul president. Is that right, Renee? So I would just wonder if you wanted to do either a reference or a plug or I, I wanted to open the floor because Saul is such a wonderful group. And it has grown rapidly over the last couple of years. I know largely because of your involvement and the involvement of folks like Joe Levy and things like that. So um, I'm, I wanted to give you the opportunity to mention that because it's such a helpful group, especially for people that are doing this kind of work that's in between sort of the student affairs and the assessment world where they've got to have fingers in both pies, if you will. So um, yeah, just kind of talk a little bit about Saul, what's going on or anything you might like to plug for that. No, thank you. I appreciate it. The Student Affairs Assessment Leaders, aka Saul, Sal, Potato, Potato, however you want to pronounce it. It came together 16 years ago. A group of people at a NASPA assessment conference were like, hey, we need a group because it's such a niche field, right? Like, I mean, you can go to some of these other higher ed organizations, but it's not so niche focused on student affairs assessment. And so we've been able to create a community of volunteers for 16 years doing this work. And a couple of years ago, I was really involved in helping foster and facilitate the strategic planning process. And we ended up shifting our, our governance structure a little bit and just our overall structure because it really wasn't working in like the world we're in today post pandemic. And so last year, we're a year into our new structure and it's amazing. Again, you have noted we have so many metrics to show we've grown so much. But essentially, it's a group of people. It's free, accessible group of individuals. You can sign up for the listserv, but it's really a community um, to really help us thrive in this environment. If we have a question or we want to know about somebody else, if they're dealing with that challenge or we need an instrument or we need um, you know, somebody to do an evaluation or serve as an external reviewer for a program review, it's a really great group. And in addition to the that community and that listserv, Um, It's very active. Um, We also do monthly webinars. Um, We also have the free course that Joe Levy leads, and it's amazing. It's free. It's an eight-week self-paced online course. We actually just became, so we've always been like this um, volunteer entity, and we finally became an official LLC, and we we submitted our paperwork to the IRS to become a 5013C for nonprofit status. So we're crossing our fingers that we'll get that. 
Um, that also has helped us establish partnerships with the Council for the Advancement of Standards. And we're working on some other partnerships and sponsorships as well. But we're just really excited about where we've been and where we're going. And again, this was a group that was there for me when I got asked to be a student affairs assessment director. I'm like, where do I start? Besides like, obviously, Ross, you gave me some, the Kirkpatrick model of evaluation is fantastic. It's it's a great place. I still have it in slides for my approach, but Sal was there for me at the very beginning. They were there and they've been amazing. So I feel like it's a really great organization and I love giving back to them as their president. Well, if you call it Sal, I'll call it Sal since you're the president. You probably know better than Sal, me, so. Sal. I mean, I, I call it both because, you know, is it short vowels or long vowels, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Renee, I, we could go on for a long time. Um, I'm going to end it here. And I, I want to end by saying um, the, there is, I always find it really weird when people say they're proud of someone else. Because I feel like pride is a is a feeling that implies involvement. Like I'm proud of my child because I raised them, right? Like you should have pride because there's a, there's a heavy involvement. Um, I don't very often say I'm proud of people, but I'm so proud of you and um, talking with you throughout. And again, that's not taking any credit. It's just <laughs> associating. You can take credit. Time. You were my mentor. Well, and we did like work to together on non cog. I'd like to think once a mentor, always a mentor. So I'm still yes. here watching and helping. But um, I'm very proud of you. And, and talking with you for the last hour has only strengthened that. You are really just a wonderful, smart, compassionate, caring, thoughtful person. Um, and we are really lucky to have you in this field and in a, a leadership position. Um, so much appreciated. And, and really, oh, really thank thanks you. for taking the time. So. Anytime. I'll, again, I love spending time with you all. You all are fantastic. And I love what your organization does. The ethos is very much in align with what I support. So anything I can do to support you all, I'm always happy to do that. Great, great. Are we going to see you at the NASPA Student Success Conference this summer? Are you going? <laughs> no, I'm going to ACPA. And then um, so I don't have the PD monies to go to the NASPA. Gotcha. But... Okay, gotcha. All right. Well, um, we'll see you soon. I'm sure we're going to go to, we're going to yeah, try to Seattle. go to Seattle. So we're going I'll in the submission. In Seattle. Oh yeah. We're going to see you in a couple of weeks. We're presenting in yeah, Seattle. Seattle. Totally see you at the FYE conference. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Okay. I love Seattle. I'm excited. Way better than Anaheim. This is a public announcement to anyone running conferences. Stop <laughs> going to Anaheim. No one wants oh, to yeah. go to Anaheim. It's Ross, an hour. I, that, yeah. I know Disneyland is there, but give it up. We've been to Anaheim enough. It's a huge PETA to get there. We're done with it. No, Seattle's I'm also great. Over New Orleans, but that one is a little more acceptable. So okay, yeah, Seattle's fun. I got some great food recommendations. I've been to Seattle quite a bit, so um, I don't spend a lot of time there. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. And this has been really great, Renee. I, I feel like I've learned so much. And uh, as somebody who started in the student affairs world, and I'm sure that I'll be spending a lot more time there, uh, hearing your story and learning from your journey has been super helpful. And um, I'm so glad that we're, we've been connected and that we'll get a chance yes. to continue getting to know each other. Well, thank you all. I appreciate the time and we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening to this episode of the College Version 2 Part Past. Tune in next month for more discussions around converting data into information and information into action.